morning and Christian greetings to each and every one of you here. I'm a bit of a smaller group this morning, but that certainly doesn't diminish our ability to, to worship, and I'm grateful for each and every one of you that is here. We have been looking at Corinthians, uh, as you know, the last uh, while, and chapters 8 to 10 of 1 Corinthians is uh, focused on the issue of meat offered to idols. Uh, that's just a very broad subject, but it's it's dealing with these morally neutral with morally neutral issues and how a church or how Christians should respond to each other in light of those where there may be differing uh, perspectives or uh, conscience issues related to that. And while Paul clearly states there is nothing wrong with eating meat, eating this idol meat, if you will, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should either. Uh, just because it's not wrong doesn't mean that we should. And we need to consider the impact it has on others. Just a quick overview of chapters 8 and 9 that I had covered from my last sermon is we're to consider our own attitude, what's our own uh, posture about this, and why do we or don't we do this. We should consider our brother or sister, and we should consider Christ, because it's more important about to love others and to love Christ. Uh, it's not about my own freedom and rights. And so we're constantly kind of in this title war, choosing between clinging to our rights and freedoms or surrendering those in order to build up God's kingdom. And there's two things that I just want to clarify or uh, that I just realized I did not state clearly last time that I, I really want to. First of all, the giving up of my rights the giving up of rights is initiated voluntarily by the more mature one. It's not something that is being required or uh, requested by the, the party that's offended. And I think that's a very important distinction there. So this is not something you go ask for, but it's something that you do voluntarily because you want to. And then secondly, the purpose of doing so is to help them grow and to become more mature, and so forth. And so this is not a perpetual crutch that they had either, uh, the, the weak ones, but it's something that you help them walk through and think through and so forth. In chapters, uh, at the end of chapter 9 and 10 then, Paul continues in discussion with several other considerations. And what we covered last time is really a somewhat incomplete picture of everything that Paul wants the Corinthian church here to consider and understand as he's thinking about it in the context of advancing God's kingdom. I have entitled this morning's message uh, Oriented to God, and we're going to be starting at the end of chapter 9 there. Several years ago, it's probably been five, six years ago now, my sons and I had did an overnight hiking and camping trip uh, in the Dolly Sods Wilderness area up in West Virginia. And it's uh, about eight miles wide and about 20 miles long of just desolate country up there in the mountains of West Virginia. And using a map, something like this, or probably this map actually, there's trails and stuff that are 
are marked on here, and but the problem is the trails in Dolly Sods are very poorly marked. I mean, you're not always sure what trail you're on, and so you're trying to figure out. So using a map and a compass, you have to kind of navigate and figure out where you are. Um, so we hike down to a creek to camp overnight, and uh, and then we're unable to find the trail that we wanted to take out the next morning. It's like there was no trail there where we thought it should be in relation to where we thought we were. We finally found a map and worked our way out, but we had to be using the map and the compass to figure out exactly which trail we were on because there was no cell service, there's no GPS. I mean, you're out there in the middle of nowhere. And anyway, so we used a map as well as a compass. To, to figure out where we were and to, uh, to, to come back out of there. Um, uh, so that was quite an experience. But So we're to, and what I'm focusing on this morning is that we're to be oriented to God. And that's like our compass, our, our orientation is to God and toward God. Beginning in verse 24 uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to continue the athletic analogies that have already been reused uh, twice this morning already. But it's, uh, it's very much, Paul is using exactly that analogy to illustrate what he is wanting to teach us here. So 1 Corinthians 9, I'm going to read verses 24 through 27 to start us out here. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises control in all things, but they do it, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the first point that I want us to, what this first section I believe is emphasizing is that we are to be oriented to God through self-discipline. So we're going to be looking at about five different ways that we can be oriented to God through various ways. Corinth was the home of Olympic-style games every three years. And so they were very, the city was very familiar with the rigorous training that athletes put themselves through to better enable themselves to win competitions. And when a person gets serious about athletic competition, it requires significant self-discipline. They sacrifice some things in order to gain other things. And so that's the reason they do it they realize there's a trade-off, and it's going to mean giving up something if I want to accomplish this. I had to think back uh, a number of years as well when Darren and Brandon used to shoot competitively uh, air rifle, in air rifle competitions. And their team of five, there was a team of five of them that were the, the main team, and they would actually stay away from sugar as much sugar as possible for weeks leading up to these state and national competitions because it 
would help them. It helped them focus, it helped them to be more steady, to concentrate, to hold still, and actually be able to time their shots between their heartbeats. Um, and, and so it helped them. They were high school students, and you can be assured that was not an easy sacrifice for them to make. But they did, and they held each other accountable for that as well. It paid off. Their team placed first for clubs in the entire country the one year. And afterwards, their coach rewarded them by getting them signed milkshakes. Uh, and so it's not that they were opposed to sugar, but it was the discipline to do what needed to be done in order to win. Athletes know that self-discipline is required to compete in and to win in physical competitions. And so they make these sacrifices for this momentary recognition and celebration. And then Paul uses this analogy to reinforce what he's been describing in both chapters 8 and 9 so far. It can almost feel like he's changing the subject here, but what he's doing is talking about sacrifice, self-discipline, self-denial is going to be required if we're going to advance God's kingdom. Because when we make it about us, we'll never advance God's kingdom. The difference is that our choices, our sacrifices, and our self-discipline will have an eternal impact. It's not just this momentary thing that we have where it talks about a temporary wreath, you know, but we have some, we have an inter eternal uh, impact. And Paul is more than willing to give up pleasures, his own pleasures, his own desires and ambitions and physical comfort and anything else to keep his focus and concentration on that of the message of the gospel. Everything he did revolved around habits and choices that helped him keep the kingdom of God front and center in his life. Paul used self-discipline to keep himself oriented on God. It wasn't about self-gratification. It was, it helped him, rather it helped him keep his bearings with his compass and map, attuned to what God was directing him to and teaching him. His self-discipline was to enable him to be the best disciple possible. Not the best athlete possible, but the best disciple possible. And he didn't want anything to get in the way of that. So, I guess a question for me, a question for each one of us is, what disciplines should we impose on ourselves to help us keep oriented on God and to make us the best disciples that he wants us to be? that we can be for God. There's daily habits, um, such as scripture reading, meditation, prayer, and so forth, sacrificial service. I don't know what all of those disciplines may be that God wants you to do, but what is it that keeps you from being the best disciple possible? That's what you should discipline yourself in and what you should focus on. Then he continues by looking back in history, and it appears here as if Paul is taking a detour and references the journey in the wilderness after being delivered, the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And I might uh, call this section is that God, we're oriented to God through history or through lessons in history. I'd like to read the first 13 verses now of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. So what, what is Paul doing here by going back and recounting some of this history? Let's consider this a little bit. He's, he's drawing an analogy for us and for, for the Christian Corinthian believers there as well. Five times in the first four verses here, Paul makes it clear that all the Israelites, all approximately two million, maybe more than that, people that left Egypt, all of them were miraculously delivered and they all experienced the same things. They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual or supernatural food and the same, all drank the same spiritual drink. All of them started out with exactly, and they all had exactly the same opportunities that everyone else did. Everyone was equally delivered, equally protected, sustained, and provided for. There was nothing discriminatory about any of this. But then he follows that immediately with verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So all of them had the same thing. But most of that mass of 2 million people were not, God was not pleased. Not all of them but most of them, in spite of having given, been given exactly the same opportunity. <coughs> All of those over age 20, when they left Egypt, were among those, the most of them, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. I believe that Paul is drawing from Israel's history here as an analogy of our, an example of our spiritual journey. All us believers have been baptized, uh, have been delivered from the slavery of sin. We've been protected and guided by the cloud or the spirit. We've been delivered from the enemy. We've been provided supernatural nourishment. However, in spite of each one of us, every believer having this incredible deliverance as well as provision, many end up turning away from God. 
Why is that? Paul gives four types of distractions uh, or sins that tripped up some of these. Uh, sex, uh, idolatry, idolatry, sexual immorality, putting God in the past, and run. Now, I don't know explicitly about the last two, but we do know that the first two were an issue with the Corinthian church specifically. I wonder if that's not why he identified these. I suspect all four of these were issues that the Corinthian believers, the Corinthian church was dealing with. For each of these, he states that some of them fell into these diseases, these sins. Some of them, after each one of them. So he starts with all of them having the same privileges and opportunities, most of them displeased God, and then some of them committed these four specific types of sins. He follows that immediately with, therefore, or because of this, let anyone who thinks he stands take to lest he fall. He is warning the Corinthians here that none of you, no one, is above falling into that exact same uh, scenario as each, as, as most of these Israelites. Take a lesson from history. If it happened to them, it can certainly happen to us. None of us are above the Israelites either. We will all be tempted in ways that others have already been tempted. And it's clear here that God is faithful. He's not going to tempt us beyond our ability beyond our capacity to escape and endure, but escape and endurance uh, indicates some intentionality in that. It doesn't just happen automatically, but rather it is only through intentional uh, walking away from intentional uh, enduring through that temptation that, 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 uh, that we prevail over temptation. It's not just simply, the temptation is not removed from us. So it seems to me that here Tim Paul is warning the Corinthian believers, whether it's those that embrace this freedom that, of Christ, the incredible scope of freedom that some claim, or it's those that have a hard time doing so, Whoever they are, they're a target of Satan, and they're not above falling. No one is so strong or so mature that they could not fall. Don't get arrogant. Don't rely on yourself. Don't think you know how to avoid Satan's traps, because it's a lie. We can't. And even if we don't say it, to even think such thoughts are dangerous. But when we start thinking in that way, we are indicating that our orientation has shifted away from God and to ourselves and what we can do, what we believe we can do on our own. And so let's not fall into that temptation. Let's think about what we can learn from history here and take heed that we don't um, think that we stand because that's probably an indication we're about to fall. Let's continue in verse 14. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are they are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So we provoke the Lord to jealousy. Are we stronger than he? So now Paul is shifting the focus again and is helping us understand that we are oriented to God through worship and through what we worship. So now Paul is zeroing in on this one item, idolatry, uh, from Israel's history. Flee from idolatry. Do you recall back in chapter 6, Paul told the Corinthian believers to flee sexual immorality. Now he's telling them to flee idolatry. Now, I know most of you here relatively well, and I don't believe any of us have a wooden or a golden statue or image in our home which we worship. Uh, I think I know us well enough to know that. So does that mean that idolatry is no longer an issue for us? Has it been eradicated due to the spread of Christianity and the freedom that we have here? I don't think so. And so while that form of idolatry was common in the first century, we have other forms of idolatry today. We become idolaters. We are idolaters at the point where we are no longer oriented to God. When we focus on something other than God, we have become idolaters. If our orientation is anywhere but on God, we are committing idolatry. A compass is pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, a compass needle always points north, to magnetic north. I'll be and let me be clear on that, it's not true north, but it is magnetic north, and for our purposes this morning, it's a fixed reference point. The basis on which, uh, you know, we make life decisions. If this, you know, compass is an analogous of our life and so forth, you know, we, we focus, we point that to uh, magnetic north, God, and we live our lives accordingly. We can use that as the reference point. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, that needle will always point north. Idolatry is when we introduce any interference to that. Another magnet can mess with that. 
it will it will distort it. It will no longer point a magnetic north. It doesn't have to be strong, but if it's close to the compass, it will distort that, and and you no longer know which way is north. It's going to pull the needle away from magnetic north and completely, and we end up completely reorienting our lives according to that standard rather than the true magnetic north and focus on that false god. That's going to lead to confusion, to unwise decisions, to deception and rejection of truth. We should all be asking ourselves, and I include myself in this as well, none of this, we just learned in the previous section of scripture, we're all susceptible to this. But I believe that we should be asking ourselves on a regular basis and honestly evaluating our lives. What is it that captures our attention? What captures our affection? Our time and energy? Our minds? Our imagination? What is it that consumes us? And I believe that whatever that may be, that is truly what we're orienting our lives around. Is it God or is it something else? And I don't know what that is. If it isn't God, it's clearly an idol. You know, idolatry can take many, many forms. And I have listed a few things here that I believe that today could be our idols for some people, I should say. I'm certainly not saying here, but I mean that the forms of idolatry. Careers, materialism, Wealth, success, politics, news and current events, entertainment and celebrities. I believe even our family can be a form of idolatry, and that takes precedence over God. Jesus said, unless you deny father, mother, brother, sister, even family, sports and leisure, all of these kinds of things, anything that pulls our focus and our orientation away from God is idolatrous. And every one of us are susceptible to that. Now, I don't know about you, but I felt like this passage, these, these verses, almost contradicted what he said in verse eight, at chapter 8. After clearly stating in chapter 8 that idols are nothing, and that idol meat is nothing, meat sacrificed to idol is meaningless, Paul seems to vacillate here on, in, on what he had emphatically declared earlier. Using the example of communion, he asks whether this isn't more important more, whether this idea of meat sacrificed to idols and the whole thing, isn't it more than just about the bread and the cup? Well, actually, he's using the communion as an example. So when it comes to communion, isn't it more than just about the bread and the cup? Clearly implying that there is more to it than just simply participating. Communion demonstrates unity and union both with God and with the local body. And it's a supernatural act of worship. That being so, then what about those that are offering meat to idols? While the idols themselves are nothing, 
the act of sacrificing is really an act of worship to demons. So that's where the difference is. It's not that the idols are anything, but it's the, the act of sacrificing that is a form of worship. And it's not appropriate to, for Christians to participate in both of these. You know, how can one drink of the cup of both God and demons? You know, whether we want to admit it or not, it is a form of worship. And while it is not stated here in these verses, I believe it can be inferred that this is what some of the Corinthian believers because of their freedom in Christ were doing, is they, they went beyond just simply eating meat offered to idols, but they may have actually sacrificed that as well, because uh, it's meaningless. The idols are nothing. But he's pointing out here that, that is, there is a difference there. When you are sacrificing, you are participating with the demons. And, and so that is not acceptable. And while that seems so obvious to us today. It's like, why would somebody even think that that might be okay? And like I say, it doesn't explicitly say that, but it's certainly implied. But thinking back at the idolatry that is present around us today, the idols that are around us today, are we participating with some of these forms of idolatry and partaking of both God and demons? Are we trying to have it both ways? Participation, as Paul states here, is an act of worship. And it's either participation with God or it's participation with demons. What are we participating in? What are we worshiping? And then the fourth one is that we are oriented to God through our conduct. Reading verses... 23-30. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So here again, it feels like Paul is maybe, maybe waffling a little bit from what he uh, had said earlier in chapter 8. But I don't think he is. His criteria is found for evaluating his conduct is found in verse 23 of the way he starts this out. As of this past week, here in Virginia, there were a bunch of new laws that took effect July 1. One of those laws is that it is now legal, now lawful, 
here in Virginia to possess a small amount of marijuana for personal use. So, that being the case, does that make it lawful for Christians to do so? So Paul starts his criteria for evaluating this is in verse 23, like I said. He uses the phrase, all things are lawful. And I, I'm, and the way that he uses it here, it feels like this must have been a common phrase that was made in Corinth. I wonder, I've had to wonder, you know, Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. I wonder if Corinth's city slogan was, all things are lawful. Uh, because Paul uses that term numerous times, a number of times. Paul again makes two of the yes, but question references when it comes to the answers to some of these things that we saw earlier in the book already. He doesn't say, he doesn't refute the all things are lawful. He doesn't say that's not true. However, he follows it with a but. All things are lawful, but not everything is expedient. Everything is lawful, but not everything will build up, will edify. <coughs> so he's not saying there's this list of things that are lawful and these are a list of things that isn't lawful. Rather, he's focusing on is it beneficial? Is it helpful? Does it build up? Does it help the body of Christ? And this is the filter through which Paul evaluated the all things or everything when he was confronted. You know, people often ask the question, uh, and you hear this from youth or you hear it from even unbelievers or whatever, are Christians allowed to do blank, fill in the blank? And it's usually a behavior which the person asking the question would like to do, is trying to find justification to do it. Paul is arguing here that that's the wrong question to ask. That's, that's not an appropriate question to ask. Rather, we should be asking, is it helpful for Christians to do fill in the blank? And that's the basis from which we decide whether it's right or wrong. Not on whether we're allowed to, but is it helpful? He summarizes in verse 24 that our conduct should be about benefiting and helping our brother and sister and not about my personal benefit or my personal desires. And then he gives a couple of other specific examples here about going to the marketplace and buying meat or being invited into somebody's home for dinner. And he says, if no one raises questions, of, don't, don't raise any questions, don't ask questions about it. If it's there, if it's put before you, simply eat it and don't make a big deal about it because it, it's not that critical. However, if someone, now notice it says someone, it doesn't say a believer, it doesn't say an unbeliever, but he just says simply, if someone mentions makes a point of telling you that this food was sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. One could ask whether that's fair or right, and Paul really raises that question here at the very end. He's like, you know, is that 
really a good basis to make a call like that. And referring back to chapter 8, I believe that Paul is reinforcing the principle that for Christians, personal freedoms have to always yield to the needs of others. And that, and that to flaunt one's freedom becomes a sin when we do so intentionally, causing anyone else to suffer. We may have the freedom to do something, but if we do that and flaunt it, we cause somebody else, and cause somebody else, we're sinning. Our conduct toward others, and especially believers, reveals something about where we are truly oriented. Uh, is it around ourselves, or is it around God? And we should evaluate our conduct in light of these questions that Paul raised. Is it beneficial to others? Is it helpful? Will it edify someone else? Will it build those up around me? And then make our choices in our conduct around those questions, keeping those two things, which are truly important in focus, and that will help keep us oriented to God as well. And then, concluding this chapter and the first verse of chapter 11. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is a powerful summary. These verses summarizing these three chapters of what Paul was talking about. Several just broad points. Whatever you do, do it to honor God. Not for my personal benefit, ambitions or perspectives, but it's about honoring God. And then don't offend others. Go out of your way to be sensitive to those around and don't focus on what you're going to get from it, but rather focus on others and ultimately their salvation. I think in a nutshell, that's what he's saying and how we should be viewing this whole thing of our freedom in Christ. But if there was ever a question about what being oriented to God means, it includes everything. Do everything to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all, do everything for God's glory. It's to be all about God, not about what benefit or glory we might be able to derive from it. And the more I think about it and ponder verse 31, it feels like the more inclusive it gets. I'm not sure how it can be more inclusive than everything, but as you just think about what that really entails, before doing anything, asking, does this glorify God? Am I doing this for my own benefit or for that of others or for God? Will it build up and strengthen those around me? Am I trying to convert any of that glory to myself? Do I think that I deserve even a little bit of that glory? 
Paul makes it very clear. Whatever you do, do all, do everything to the glory of God. And then verse 1 of chapter 11, which when you read this, it really, I do believe that it belongs more to chapters 8 through 10 than starting out chapter 11. Paul sets himself as an example for the Corinthian believer. He says, imitate me. I'm imitating Jesus Christ. Do as I do. Follow my example. And I think what Paul is really getting at is that he's saying, I am not doing, I'm not asking anything of you that I'm not doing myself. Just follow my example. I have done this. I have, uh, I am doing this. Follow my lead in this. And I don't know that there's a better reference point for us today, you know, when it comes to thinking about and uh, about these types of morally neutral issues that, you know, are maybe, are not wrong in and of themselves and how to handle it. But, but this closing phrase in, in verse, um, whatever verse it is here, but where it says, verse 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. Wrapping up here, in these three chapters, Paul is teaching the Corinthians the importance of looking beyond themselves when it comes to issues related to a Christian's freedom and rights on morally neutral issues. He is helping them to get focused on, to centered on, and oriented to God in order to make the kinds of decisions that will ultimately glorify Him. We are naturally oriented to ourselves. We want to do what we want. And our choices will reflect that. But when we remove the junk, the interferences, the idols, the personal agendas from away from the compass, orienting our lives, we can properly orient to God to magnetic norm and have an accurate picture of where we are and what God wants us to do. So my challenge to you this morning is that we stay oriented to God so that God's kingdom can be advanced. And our orientation will be optimized through our self-discipline, through lessons from history, our worship, and our conduct. And while these four areas were emphasized by Paul, it certainly is not comprehensive. Whatever you do, everything you do, do all, do everything to the glory of God. I'm going to turn the time back over to uh, Ivan to close the service.